Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Travers. This is Popcorn, where I tell you what's happening at the movies and what we have at the movies right now in different kinds of ways that you'll explain, Kevin. Oh, yeah. Is a Jay and Silent Bob reboot. It's a movie that dumps on reboots tremendously and then creates one. Yes. You know, so it's I It's a just movie love that, that makes fun of reboots and sequels and remakes while being all three at By the same being time. All at the same time, which is so you. <laughs> Likes to have its cake yeah. and eat it, too. It's so well, meta. Thank you. Thank anyway, you. Kevin Smith, welcome. Thank you. Welcome for having me. Excellent It's great you. to have you. So why, after I just described this, did you... Because to me, this movie is just a party. Yeah. You get to see... <laughs> it is. It's you know, like the it, best high school reunion you've never been invited to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And everybody is showing up. And I don't even know if it's like spoilers or things to give away we to... We put them all in the trailer, so feel free. They were not all in the trailer. We did. We didn't hide anything. Really? I, look, I made a movie years ago called Tusk. A24 yes. put it out, and I fought them so hard on putting the walrus in the trailer, and they were mm-hmm. like, but, but that's the whole movie. I was like, nope, can't put him in the trailer. It's got to be a surprise. <laughs> and it was when the movie tanked that I realized, you know, we might have shown him the walrus, and that made him want to go. Why didn't we <laughs> Why ever show him the we- walrus? So when we did this trailer, I was like... Put the whole movie in there. Do one of those <laughs> 80s trailers where it's five minutes long and does the whole movie. Well, let's, so that they can have a taste of this, let's look at the clip first. Totally. Before we start just talking. You <laughs> know? Done, so, Derek, look, I can do this. Make that clip happen. Big deal. And I'm going, yes. A reboot, boys, is when Hollywood wants to make a lot of money without the hassle of creating a new movie. So they take an old movie and change just enough to make you pay for the same all over again. Those greedy animals. Oh, it's insidious. They take a flick you loved as a kid and add youth and diversity to it. For example, name the movie where a robot has secret plans that could help the good guys beat the bad guys and their leader in a black mask by blowing up a giant ray gun in space. Star Wars. No, The Force Awakens. See, now that's what you call a reboot. Nung. thought that was a sequel. Studios have given up on new ideas entirely in favor of building multi-movie universes that breed brand-loyal customers from cradle to grave. So if you like Harry Potter, cash Shinigus, you're getting ten more. You like the Fast and Furious flicks? We're gonna drive the franchise into the ground. Ooh, you want another Marvel movie? Here we go. Hey, man, those Marvel movies are a triumph of cinema. I live on those Marvel movies. I live (laughs) for those Marvel movies. (laughs) <laughs> this is so you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally stuff I've said before. Before, yes. Of course it is. Because it's coming from your head. Yeah, I'm you not know? I'm not a very original screenwriter. I just kind of take from life and whatnot. This whole movie was taken from Jason Mewes. He's actually a uh, dad in real life. He's got a four and a half year old. Uh, that Who's in the movie? She's in the movie. Mm-hmm. And and uh it's very it's been weird watching him. Weird and wonderful watching him for like the last Four years and change because he's the guy least likely, right? He's the dude you don't give a carton of eggs to, let, let alone another human being, let alone a small human being. <laughs> but he turned out like the captain of responsibility to be the most responsible dad on the planet. He is an excellent, excellent father. Um, relates to the kid like I've never seen a dad relate to a kid. Could be, you know, even though he's 45 and she's four, their maturity level is the exact same. But like, <laughs> he's such a great dad. So I was like, man, I never would have imagined. What would your cinematic counterpart be like? He might be like, if you're a good dad, it'd be weird if we did a movie about him being a dad as well. And it started from there. So I always pull from real life. I'm not very original. But you do switch it up. I mean, without giving too much away. Yeah, well, I mean, in real life, I've got a daughter. daughter. And in the movie, 
she plays Jay's daughter. Because she, if she played my daughter in the movie, that's not acting, Pete. That's it's, that's real. That's a documentary. Yeah, we don't want that. We no. want to have her work for her money. She wants to be an actress yeah. for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. So she gets to play Jay's uh, daughter in the movie, which is fun. On, on Instagram, like, you know, for the last 10 years, anytime I put up a picture of me and the kid, people in the comment section would be like, I don't know, she looks more like Jay than Silent Bob. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to lean into that. <laughs> and that's what the whole movie's about. <laughs> I mean, you're bringing it up. I said when you came in how slim you look. Thank you. You know? And, yes, you said it's a lot due to the heart attack. It's all due to the heart, heart attack. attack. I never would have done anything were it not for the heart attack. I got a heart attack, what, a year and a half ago, so at age 47, uh, Widowmaker and stuff. And so in that situation, as the doctor told me, it was on the table. He goes, you're having a Widowmaker heart attack. You know, you know what that is? I said, no. He goes, that means that in 80% of the cases where the patient has what you have, 100% blockage, uh, the patient always dies. He's going, but you're going to be in the 20% because I'm really good at my job. And he disappeared into my crotch and made magic. That's how they save your heart. They go into your crotch, they puncture through your groin, go up your femoral artery, and then they screw around with your it heart. It sounds like you really want to live, don't I, you? I didn't. Like, honestly, like, when he told me, like, oh, my 80% chance of dying, I was uh, like, wow, that's the worst odds I've ever had in my life that I'm aware of. I mean, I might have been... Mm-hmm in an 80% chance of dying situation at some point in my life and been unaware of it. Mm-hmm. But suddenly I had the info, and I sat there and reflected on my whole life. Not like my life flashed before my eyes, but I'm like, well, this is it. You spent your whole life examining yourself and whatnot with your head up your ass. Like, what do you think now that you're about to die? And I was actually at peace. I was like, you know what, man? Like, Because I've always been terrified of dying. But I was in this weird place of peace where I said, like, you know, if this is the end... I had a really great life. I had great parents, great wife, great kid. I had this weird singular career, wonderful friends. Like, yeah, it sucks that I'm 47 is, is ending early, but, like, you know, that's your health and that's on you. But just push back from the table. If this is the end, like, go gracefully. Don't be the last guy at the party that's like, hey, man, it's 4 a.m. You got any more beer? Like, just leave. And so I was at, I was totally at peace and ready to go. Not like, yay, let's die. But I'm like, well, if this is it, I'm just going to enjoy the rest of this time. Then I was seized with the only regret I felt. I said, if I die tonight, the last movie I made was Yoga Hosers. Damn it. So I said to the doc, you got to save me because he's down in my crotch. He's like, I'm trying to do that. I was like, you got to save me because I got to make Jane Saw and Bob reboot. That movie is a cinematic gravestone. Don't put it on a poster. I won't sell the movie. <laughs> but I think of it as a cinematic gravestone because this is the movie that represents everything I've been for my entire career. I call it my masterpiece, not because it's brilliant or good by any stretch of the imagination, but the traditional definition of masterpiece is an apprentice served under a master for many years, and once you accrued the amount of skills that you could to actually practice the same thing, you presented the master with your Mm -hmm. masterpiece, and the master would judge you and be like, well, you know, you're getting close or whatever. This is my masterpiece. My boss is the audience, and this is me after 25 years going like, this is everything I've learned in this business of show in podcasting, as a dad, as just a human being, this represents my entire life. So if I do die of a heart attack the second time, this stands as like a monument to who I was. Does it work? So I'm kind of happy. Well, unless you wind up doing like mall rats too. Well, that's the thing. You know, that could happen Now it means everything Everything takes on greater significance. (laughs) I'm working on like Masters of the Universe, the cartoon Mm -hmm. over at Netflix. (laughs) And you better believe I'm like, this has to stand for who I was in case I die. And they're like, Bro, it's about Skeletor. And I'm like, hey, it doesn't matter. Everything takes on the seriousness now because I almost died. So Reboot took on this extra level. And when I wrote it two and a half years ago, it was about a comedy. But now it became like much more. It's kind of like when we were making it. Remember remember Big Fish? Yeah. Tim Burton's Big Fish. 
Last 10 minutes of Big Fish, Albert Finney getting carried through his life, the most beautiful mm-hmm. thing, you're bawling like crazy. That was the entire making of this movie, Pete. Like, basically, I, every day I went to work and saw somebody who meant something significant to me throughout my life or career and whatnot. Then we played together again, and then they moved me to another set, and we did it again. I honestly expected that that was it. Somebody knew something I didn't. They're like, he is going to die. So let him meet everybody. Even Affleck came back. I haven't seen Ben in close to a decade. We, we it's a fell great out of scene touch. with him. It's, and I'll tell you, and even, even weirder, he... It wasn't in the script when we started shooting. Yeah. When we went to make the movie, the Holden scene did not exist. I didn't include Ben because I hadn't talked to him in years. So I was like, I'm not going to include Holden. I'm not going to reach out to Ben after a decade and be like, <laughs> come play. So Holden wasn't there. We came to it through entertainment journalism. There's a sweet kid named Kevin McCarthy who does what you do and mm-hmm. stuff. He's out of Washington, D.C. always goes on the junkets, sees all the movies, reviews the flicks. He was interviewing Affleck for uh, the Netflix movie Triple Frontier. So he's mm-hmm. on the junket. And right off the bat, as he sits down, he goes, so they're doing Reboot. Have they called you yet? And Ben's like, no, nobody called me. And I'm not, I'm not busy. And so we <laughs> saw that busy, online. Yeah. And people were like, you got to reach out to him and stuff. I was like, I ain't reach out. That's a nice thing to say at a junket. Like, that don't mean he really wants to do it. But I did reach out to him after a week, not having spoken to the guy in close to a decade. And uh, he responded. Like, I couldn't believe my number still worked. And he came down to New Orleans as well, man. And, like, that that was everything. I hadn't spoken to him in a long time. I saw Kevin McCarthy at the Avengers Endgame premiere. I said, come here, I have to tell you a story. He's like, hey, man, you ready to watch this? I said, come here, i got to tell you a story. And I told him, I was like, bro, not only did your dopey little comment get that guy into my movie and give me the best scene in the movie, you gave me my friend back after a decade, man. You gave me a little piece of my heart back. I went so real with him. He's like, how am I supposed to watch Endgame now? I was like, you'll enjoy it. Just know that you were a big part of yes, this movie you, as well. Yes, you made this happen, yeah. which is a great thing. But when you were talking about Muse before, yeah. you go through the heart attack. You spent, he's been sober now for how long? Uh, he's coming up on 10 years solid. But you went through the worst period with of that guy's what? life. When he was an addict? Yeah. It was pretty tough. Yeah. Man. Dealing with addicts is a, if you're not geared up for it, I didn't come from a family with addiction in it, so I wasn't really quite prepared. Um, and, you know, it takes you into weird places, and, and it really does test you your You took him home with Always, you. because he's a good dude. Like, at the end of the day, you know, Muse, he's got a filthy little mouth and stuff, and he's mischievous, but, like, this dude never read a bad comic book, never saw a bad movie, never has an unkind word to say about mm-hmm. anybody. He's like a good guy. He's got a million-dollar heart. Nickel head, but a million-dollar heart. <laughs> you got to look out for a guy like that. You can't let a good person like that go down just because he fell into some drugs and stuff. So it was always easy to be like, here, come here. I'll, I'll get you sober and stuff like that. Number one, we're making movies together. So I'm like, come on, you're my cash cow. So I'd dry him out and stuff like that. But then also, we're just friends. I wouldn't want to see him fall by the wayside. Mercifully, we started doing this podcast called Jane, Son, Bob Goodall, which we performed live, doing it for like 10 years, all around the world and stuff. You know, that, that kept him sober for like the first four or five years. But the kid, when the kid came along, that changed everything. Because he, now he has something to be sober for. He would never want to humiliate, confuse, or embarrass his kid by being an addict anymore because the addiction behavior, addiction is a terrible thing, but the behavior it leads to, you know, alienates your entire family around you. He's got somebody that he cares more about in the entire world than he ever did before. So it's important. It impresses upon him that he's like, I'm never going down that road again. It's wonderful to watch a dude grow. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, you know, I always would urge him like, you got to save yourself or do it for me or whatever. The kid, 
That's all we needed. If only he'd had a kid all those years ago, because he didn't, didn't know his own dad. He had a fraught relationship with his mother and stuff. And because of that, he is a super parent. Like, he's going to be every aspect of that parent he never had for mm-hmm. himself. Watching that is more entertaining, honestly, than any of the movies we've made together. Watching that kid grow from this little knucklehead who runs around saying, Snoogans, that I was like, let's put you in a movie, movie. to becoming a legit adult, man, like who actually is growing another human being and doing a great job raising that kid. That's thrilling. So, yeah, I would never let that, that guy go down, which means it sounds way dirtier than I meant it. <laughs> <laughs> but so what? You yes. know, there's nothing but love in it. Truly. You know, that's what you feel when you're watching this movie. Yeah, this movie. It's like everybody, that, and sometimes even when Hemsworth shows up, yeah. it's like, what is this? That felt good. <laughs> yeah, Hemsworth is, is one thing to get back like Matt and Ben, like because then at least you're like, all right, we still have the old team back and mm-hmm. stuff. But getting Chris Hemsworth, getting like Val Kilmer, Melissa Benoist, like the new kids in the movie, mm-hmm. that felt like fantastic. Method and Red, because I'm like, ooh, we could still pull. Like well, in Melissa the nineties, you with directed that Supergirl. Supergirl, I've you, done you four times. See, there you go. I love her to death. She's the absolute truth. In, in terms of a number one on a show. Like somebody who has to lead and who's in every scene and they work at her death. Such a sweet disposition. I asked her three years ago. I was like, we're going to make this Jane Saw and Bob movie. And uh, would you want to be in it? And her eyes went real wide. And she was like, one summer, me and my older sister watched Jane Saw and Bob strike back for three months straight. And I was like, welcome to our movie. <laughs> yeah, and then she, she held on. Like even three years later, she showed up and did the part. But you see this whole family that comes back with yeah. you. New friends, but... Old family yeah. that's there. But you know who's not there? Harvey Weinstein. Yes, thank The you. guy yeah. from the beginning. That was point of, uh, well, actually one of the points of I doing thought this maybe movie. you'd call him up. Yeah, like come show up. No. <laughs> yeah. I, one of the points of making the movie was like all the VSQ movies we ever did, the VSQ universe, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of Mallrats, like the Weinsteins were attached, you know, Miramax, and so they were attached. Uh, Clerks, we made without them, and they bought the, that movie. So at least I feel like, all right, my first movie's safe. It's still completely mine. Although, Miramax buying it and bringing it to the world, you know, that complicated things for me uh, uh, when the Me Too thing happened because that used to be a point of pride with me. Being Miramax, like being part of that winning Mm -hmm. team, the championship season and stuff, and then you find out that like while you were having a championship season, other people were going through living hell. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it really changes the game altogether where you're like, I used to be so proud, Peter, of like, I was a Miramax filmmaker and now I'm just like, Knowing what I know, like, I honestly, you could take it all back. Like, if I knew when we were making Clerks that eventually we get to a point where we find out the guy that picked up our movie did that to all those people, made other people's lives horrible. Mm -hmm. I was raised Catholic. I know what I would have said. I'd be like, I'm fine. I'll stay at the convenience store. Like, who wants to be involved with that? When that happened, it just felt bad. And nothing happened to me. Like, I don't want to sound like a victim here. Mm -hmm. There were real victims. But, like... I was involved with somebody that apparently was this monster who we didn't know. I had no idea. I saw, who was it? Scott Rosenberg wrote some article somewhere. He was like, everybody knew. I'm like, maybe you hung out with the man a lot more than I did. But I lived in New Jersey. I didn't know anything. And when I found out, I was like, it made me even more, I don't know. It just like, and this sounds like so first world and complaining, but it like tainted my filmography where I'm like, ugh. They're attached to everything, yeah, even the good ones. So I, know, I said but it with Reba, never really do that. It does. You know? It does for me, and I but, know I over, I'm a little emo and I overreact and, and stuff. But like, as much as I was invested in Miramax, like that meant something to me. I was like a champ. That was like being with the 1984 to 88 Edmonton Oilers or being with Pixar for the first ten years. Like it was a magical place where great things were happening. But under the surface, 
horror show, you know? And suddenly, now you got to look, you can't just be like, well, never mind that. The good times were good. You mm-hmm. can't look back and, and not remember that, like, apparently while I was having my dreams come true, nightmares were being made for other people. So, reboot, I was like, we get to make this, and they're not involved this time around. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no Harvey or anything like that. There's no wine scenes whatsoever. And it felt kind of, kind of good. And not like I'm like, I need to shower them off me. But it was really nice to have one that was like the first one, that clear. Like, that we just made it. And no, and it's great. I, I was just talking about memory, because whatever Harvey did, this isn't what you were doing when you made that movie. You yeah. know? So the thing is, to me, I basically started at Rolling Stone with Clerks. Yeah. So that was, uh, that just here's a Here's a story, away. and this ties you and me and Harvey together. Not like we All ever right, want like that we to don't happen. But, that, but, but it, still, I do guess. you remember back in the day, like when Clerks happened, uh, the MPAA gave it an NC-17. Mm-hmm. And so Miramax had just been bought by Disney, but Miramax, of course, was also used to doing, like before they were Disney, big publicity stunts that got them attention that didn't cost a lot of money. So... They turned this NC-17 that the MPA gave to the movie into a censorship issue, and they had a bunch of people sign it, like a petition, mm-hmm. telling the MPA, like, you can't give it an NC-17. There's no dirty, it's just language. It's just mm-hmm. harsh language. And Martin Scorsese signed it and stuff, but you signed it. Mm-hmm. One of the first times I met you was that. And I've been a reader my life. You know, mm-hmm. I've been reading your reviews for a while and stuff. So it was magical that, like, we, suddenly I was legitimized. And, and again... That ties to my origin. All that stuff is part of like my history, but now it's also part of something bad that happened over there. So it's almost like, well, let's just leave history over there and go on to the future, shall but, we? I mean, I'm, li- I'm listening to you and I'm watching you and I'm thinking the heart attack. You must, have, you must be slowing down. But my guess is that <laughs> you're not. No. You know, I, the comic books, the, the Q&A, you're taking this one out, right? This we do. is after the Fathom thing where it plays. October 15th and October 17th, Fathom events puts it on screens everywhere. Like if you go on the 15th, you get a poster. If you go on the 17th, it's a double feature with Jane, Silent Bob, Strike mm-hmm. Back. That's so everybody who wants to see it immediately gets to see it. Then October 19th, me and Jay take the movie out for 62 city tour where we go Whoa. city by city like a band. And, you know, we introduce the movie and then watch the movie with the audience and then afterwards do Q&A and stuff. You know, you're famous for your Q&As. I'm, that's, they're, they're, I, I, no, they are. I'm famous for, like, not even, I'm, number one, I'm not famous, Pete. Number yes, two, you are. I'm known for making a living with my mouth like a prostitute. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an that's oralist. That's a great way to put it. The, yes, I started with the movies. The oralist the would be a great title the, for another. That's my autobiography. <laughs> Don't take it. The, uh, I, my introduction to the, to the world was through clerks. That was me going, mm-hmm. hey, man, my name's Kevin Smith, I'd like to talk to you until I die. And then I figured out because, like, you know, they put you on the circuit with the movie, you got to go out and answer for it afterwards. You start doing QA. So I s- stood up and started, put a mic in my hand, started talking, and realized I'm a far better talker than I'm a filmmaker. So I, I have to keep making these films just so I can go out and have something to talk about. <laughs> and, and I'm hopefully, like, my craft grows as I get older, but I am an, I've gotten nothing but better. At speaking to the point where, like, well, you did I don't one have that to make was what, eight anymore. hours long. Yeah, speaking gig. It, was it eight started hours and ended at three a.m. I was trying to be Bruce Springsteen. I, we, <laughs> I just wanted to I beat think, the audience. Oh, no, I think that's. Great. I'm, I'm gonna be the last one in the building. <laughs> Go ahead, leave. A heart attack has destroyed you. Not at all. All right, let's take a couple of questions from the outside, done. from that that web that you deal with, from Brad L. Who was your favorite cameo in one of your movies? How about just this one? 
Uh, in reboots, who's my favorite cameo? Uh, you know, uh, you know, I could do all time. Stan Lee. Uh, Stan Lee was in Mallrats, uh, mm-hmm. 1995, and it's you know people people call it a cameo, but it was a co-starring role because he had a pretty big scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but that cameo kicked open the doors of what was a 22, 23 year friendship. I didn't realize it. Like I always thought that Stan was just nice. Whenever I saw him again after like Mallrats, he'd always be like, Kevin, when do you put me in another movie? Hey, Kevin, and hey, Spider Friend, always. So kind and always had time to talk. I just thought he was being like Hollywood polite and stuff. And it wasn't until about 10 years into knowing them that I realized like, oh, we're friends. Like I actually became friends with Stanley. So the cameo in Mallrats was a way to say to a generation of kids necessarily didn't know the guy like, hey, this is Stanley. He created Spider-Man. Meet him. You'll, you know his work. Years later, they made a movie called Captain Marvel. And it's one of Stan's <laughs> last cameos. And it's set in 1995. And he's on a train, and uh, he's reading a script when they find him, and it's the script to Mallrats. It says Mallrats by Kevin Smith. So, like, 22 years later, that dude literally returned the favor. He introduced me to a new generation. I was like, hey, this is Kevin Smith. He played a character named Silent Bob you're probably completely unfamiliar with. (laughs) So it it was nice. That cameo paid incredible dividends. But best of all, it it gave me a friendship with uh, my mentor, with a guy who taught me how to be in this business. And not, like, in movie business, but taught me the, everything I need to know about fan interactivity because my career is predicated on that. It's not predicated on the movies or anything I do. It's predicated on my ability to relate with the audience. And that's what's kept me going all this time. We talk about me not slowing down. That's just because if I did, Pete, they'd kick me out. I should have <laughs> been out of this business like in 1995. Mallrats was a flop, a true flop. But now it's not. It's this, this thing. And I'm the only one that remembers it's a flop. I'm still out there going like, Mallrats flop. Yeah, People see, are that's like, you. no, You're I remembering own it. all the, the negative. filmmakers remember, dude. Yeah, you have you, to because yeah. they're your children. I guess. But all right, let's take one more question Kale. here. Here we go. Kyle Kelly says, what's been the most emotional day for you on set as a filmmaker? Um, That's good. This whole interview's been emotional. I know. And and believe me, I'm a middle-aged stoner, so everything makes me cry. (laughs) So I cried every day on Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. Um, Watching my kid, like, crush it. My kid and Jay act together. They have a scene where they cry, and that made me, in turn, cry off camera because I was like, oh, my God, we're going to make so much money. And then, uh, but my real tears was on, uh, they built... The Quick Stop in New Orleans. Quick Stop is the building from Clerks, where mm-hmm. Clerks takes place and stuff. Store that I worked at for many years in uh, Leonardo, New Jersey. And we didn't have enough money, ironically enough, to go to New Jersey to shoot. And production kept telling me from before we got there, and even while we were there, like, we, if we go to New Jersey, it's half a million dollars just to do that one day. Like, we don't have that kind of money. We can duplicate it here. And I was like, you're out of your mind. Are you crazy? You cannot duplicate the Quick Stop in New Orleans, completely forgetting I work in the movie business, business where they right. created Thanos from yeah. like thin air. Like he don't <laughs> right. exist. And yeah. I'm like, you can't possibly duplicate the <laughs> ugliest the square top. building right. in New Jersey yeah. with no windows. So they showed me a building. They're like, this one looks close. And I looked at it. I was like, you know what? It kind of is. I guess if we had to, I guess this will do. And they were like, no, we're going to skin it. Don't worry. So I show up the day we go to shoot the scene at Quick Stop, the opening of the movie and stuff. And I pull up and I know I'm in New Orleans cognitively I'm fully aware that I'm in Louisiana and I pull up and instantly I'm in New Jersey man it it looked exactly like it and I got out and I started crying because I was like this building changed my life were it not for this building I I don't go on this weird 25 year journey I've been on in this Mm -hmm. odyssey and you can't you can fool people in a movie audience 
but you can't fool me. Like this was my home for years and years and stuff. I said, even now I'm getting like emotional. I said, and seeing it here, like you being able to duplicate it, replicate it, and so replicate it. And they, I was crying. They shot on video. So my mom saw the movie finally, uh, like you know, a month, two months later after we wrapped. And my mom sees the movie, and at the end of the movie, begins kind of like it opens. Dante pulls up to the quick stop mm-hmm. and gets out and goes to open the, the steel shutters. My mom starts crying. And I'm like, what's the matter? And she's like, that's your life. She's like, I used to drop you off at the store. And you would go in and uh. open it up. And she's like, it's crazy that it's like this little joke in the movie. But she's like, that came from our lives. I'm like, Ma, everything I do comes from our lives. I'm not talented. I just steal from our lives. <laughs> no, I'm getting it. It's like you go back. This is what happens when you survive a heart attack. Everything's is. emotional. Everything You're like, is. life is beautiful, Well, Peter. then you know what? It is. It is beautiful. It is. It, really it is, is beautiful. There's no cynicism here. We haven't even got a chance to get to that in this whole thing. So, <laughs> yes. There's I mean, some I haven't movie. even, because there is some. Yeah, there is some. But this show that we do here on Popcorn always ends in a little song. Love it. You must have a something. A bunch. Yeah, what do you need? There must be something that's touching you, that a song that comes to you after what you've just been through. Yes, there yes, is one. I knew it. I went walking with my kid last night. We went to had a beautiful evening with my daughter. She's got a new boyfriend. We're walking home back to the hotel. We run across this place, and I see it, and I said, oh, my Lord. I said, my entire childhood growing up in New Jersey, I said, I always heard this song. I said, but you grew up in Los Angeles. She was born in Jersey, but we raised her in L.A. I said, so you don't know this. I was like, but I do, man. And we're stopped at a light. There's nowhere to go, and there's about 20 people around us. So I turned to my only begotten daughter, and I said, someone made a store just for me. Food Emporium, Food Emporium. Someone's got my brand of quality. It was a jingle from my childhood. And the kid was like, what is that? Stop singing in front of these people. I was like, that's the Food Emporium jingle. You unappreciative little bastard. That's the song. That's the song you always want to be hearing Heavens. when you're most moved in That's life. the song I'll be hearing when I, the next heart attack that, takes me out. I'll be hearing someone be made a store just for me. Kevin, you are the Pleasure. best. Pleasure. Excellent singing. Always. <laughs>